Amen. Please remain standing as we read the sermon text today. So please turn in your Bibles, if you have them with you, to Genesis 3. I'm going to be reading verses 14 through 24. And just to give you a heads up, we're going to spend the majority of our time looking at the implications of of verse 15, the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. So before I read the text, let's come before God in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for the Bible that you've given to us this precious, precious gift We thank you for this word that's able to make us wise unto salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Grant your blessing now as we read and study the scriptures together. And I pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Genesis chapter 3, beginning with verse 14 and reading through verse 24. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible word, so I encourage you to pay close heed to it. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise or crush his heel. I'm sorry. He shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and you shall rule over, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, skins, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden... He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. You know, there's always, I think, uh, something unexpected about, about Christmas. You know, even when we've been anticipating it for months, uh, and, and it's just not the, the presence, uh, family visits. It's the grace of God in sending his son as our savior. Sending his son to die for sinners. I think that's unexpected. That's surprising. I don't have to tell you we certainly do not deserve grace. 
So whenever I think we capture even a small part of what Christmas means, the message of God's grace is somehow always there. And it surprises us. But you know, we really shouldn't be surprised because all the biblical references to the coming and birth of Jesus are like that. And this is particularly true, I think, of the first prophecy of the coming of Jesus, which occurs in this passage, specifically Genesis 3.15. Now, what's surprising here uh, is not the birth of Christ, uh, his announcement is, is announced. I think we should expect that. I think what's unexpected is that the scene in which it occurs is one of judgment. You know, Satan has tempted Eve to sin. She did. She ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Both she and her husband had been instructed not to do that. Adam had also sinned in eating from the tree. And now God has come into the garden to mete out judgment. He's told them that if they did that, they would die. Now, I'm not sure they knew exactly what dying meant. But they had done what God had told them not to do. And they must have been terrified as they waited for a punishment from God. This would be a punishment perfectly suited to that particular crime. Now, for some reason, that scene reminds me of a Gilbert and Sullivan musical in which the Lord High Executioner, he sings of his desire, if you recall, to have each punishment perfectly suit a particular crime. And one of the stanzas of the song concerns the perfect punishment meted out to a billiard player who has cheated people out of their money in pool games. Now, if you know the song, you know the stanza goes like this. The billiard shark whom anyone catches His doom's extremely hard. He's made to dwell in a dungeon cell in a spot that's always barred. And there he plays extravagant matches in fitless finger stalls on a cloth untrue with a twisted cue and elliptical billiard balls. Maybe not the best idea, but I think you get the idea. You know, that's a perfect punishment for a pool shark who cheats people out of their money. And I think we might well shudder as we think of the perfect punishment suited to the much, much, much greater crime of Adam and Eve in their sin against their creator. We would expect that the perfect punishment here for these two would be instant death. That's what what he promised them. So, but that's not what happened is it instead of dying immediately God pronounced only a token judgment on them we read about it in verses 16 through 19 pain upon the woman in childbirth grief for the man in earning a living but also wonder of wonders a promise of a deliverer a savior to come from Eve and her offspring 
Dear ones, this is the unexpected wonder of the first Christmas. This is surprising. This is the first appearance of God's grace in the Bible. And I think grace is always surprising to us. You know, at first glance, uh, verse 15 doesn't seem particularly wonderful and uplifting, doesn't seem to be full of grace. It's actually talking about a war. It's talking about a war that began between Satan and Eve, between his offspring and hers. And it continues to the time of Christ and beyond. Now, the word used here for this conflict is enmity, which means ill will on one side or on both. Hatred. It means especially antagonism. Now, it's hard to see how that could be good, but this enmity is good. And I think we should be alerted to that by the fact that it's God who created it. So let's just take a look at how this antagonism is good and shows God's grace. So let's look first at this antagonism between Eve and Satan. Now we have to remember that Satan had already rebelled against God. You know, Satan was the highest of angels, but for some reason he wasn't satisfied with that. He wanted to replace God as the, as the ruler of the universe. Now he wasn't successful. In fact, God tossed him out of heaven for trying that. But now he appears on earth to attempt to do among this new race of human beings what he failed to do earlier with God. And I think his temptation of Eve and in that temptation, Satan had a couple of things in mind. First, he wanted to seduce our first parents away from the worship of God. Second, he wanted to win their allegiance and worship for himself. And sadly, we know he succeeded in that first objective. He did break the fellowship of Adam and Eve with God. That happened as Genesis 3 describes for us. But he failed in the second thing. Because God says here that he's putting enmity, he's putting antagonism between the woman and Satan. Now there's something new here. The new element here is not Satan's hatred of Eve. Satan hated Eve from the moment of her creation. Even when he was pretending to be her best friend and tempting her to, to eat from the tree. No, the new thing here is Eve's and Adam's and all their offspring's hatred of Satan. As one aspect of God's gracious preservation of and provision for the human race. That's new. And you know, if you think about that, what an amazing truth and blessing that is for us. You know, it's certainly true that the human race's ideas of truth and falsehood are clearly corrupted. But you know, we nevertheless retain some ideas, some inkling of right and wrong. And this is the important thing. We approve of the good, or we think we should, and we oppose evil. We try to oppose it. Now, C.S. Lewis, in his classic book, Mere Christianity, remember what he called this? He called this the law of human nature. He says that all mankind, regardless of the culture that he lives in, 
has as part of his DNA this sense of right and wrong. You know, we know instinctively what we should do in certain situations, even though we don't always do it. John Calvin calls this a divine sense, that all human beings have a sense of the divine within them. We know intuitively right from wrong. God put it there. John talks about this in the first chapter of his gospel, verse 9. We thank God rightly at Christmas for things like love, joy, happiness, that the coming of Christ has brought us. But we should never forget to thank him for this corresponding hatred of sin. Sorrow at sin's ways and increasing misery when we find ourselves ensnared in sin's tentacles. When we sin, we often find that we like it, but we want to escape its consequences. We would like to destroy ourselves in comfort. We would, we, we would like to go to hell happy. But thank God, thank God is one aspect of his amazing grace that he doesn't allow that to happen. He makes sin miserable. He sets up an antagonism between ourselves and Satan, modifies its hold on us, makes it possible for us to hear God's loving voice, even in our misery. So I think that is the first antagonism in this verse. It's between the woman and Satan. But there's a second one mentioned here. It's an antagonism between the woman's offspring and Satan's offspring. Now, I don't think that this is speaking of the enmity between human beings and demons. I don't think that's what's been said here. For one thing, Satan doesn't really have offspring. He's not going around engendering little devils. The demons were created once by God. They were created as angels before their fall. And they're not increasing in number. You know, I'm pretty sure... That what's envisioned here is a conflict between the ungodly descendants of the woman, Eve, influenced by God, and the ungodly descendants of the woman, influenced by Satan. In other words, it's a conflict between two humanities, which is developed further if you read along here in Genesis 4 and 5. And so if that's so, I think it is. This is a message for the godly in every age. For ours, there's this divinely created animosity between the people of God and those who are not his people. And it's for our good. You know, I think that conflict, it sharpens our, it sharpens our will to serve God. You know, one of Isaac Watts' great hymns, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? Ask these questions. Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend of grace to help me on to God? And I think in the context of that hymn, the answer is clearly no. The world is no friend of grace. It doesn't help us on to God. In fact, it hinders us. And I think Watts' hymn says he wants us to fight against the world for Christ's sake, which we have to do. So I think our hatred of Satan the world's hatred of us, I think those are two great Christmas gifts 
They're the first gifts ever given to us by God. But there's another antagonism here that I think is much more beneficial even than those two. You see, these first two give us hope. They tell us basically that God has not abandoned us, that he's established this beneficial enmity between those who desire God and those who desire evil. This last antagonism assures us not only of hope, but, dear ones, it, it, it assures us of victory. It's the antagonism between Jesus as the specific and climactic seed of the woman and Satan himself. It results in the bruising of Jesus, but it also results in the crushing of Satan. You know, Satan is constantly aiming at the destruction of Jesus. He has been since day one. And I think, if, you know, if you look at it like that, then the entire Bible is just really one story. It's the story of this antagonism, this, this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent between Israel and the nations, between the church and the world, between Christ and Satan. And even though we sometimes act, I think, as if it's not true, Christ is victorious in this conflict. He wins in the end. But it's a fight. It's a battle. So I think it might be helpful if we just go back in time a little bit beginning right here in Genesis 3, and just highlight in Scripture the wonderful providence of God in ensuring Christ's victory over Satan. You know, the battle's joined right here in Genesis 3.15. That's where it starts. It's here that God promised Adam and Eve a deliverer. He promised that Jesus would come from Eve and her offspring. Now, they thought it was Cain. <laughs> it wasn't. They were mistaken. But these words spell out the war that will exist between Satan and the woman, between his offspring and her offspring, between, between himself and her great descendant, Jesus Christ. The words of the promise and the conflict are spelled out for us here. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Well, what happens? Very shortly, children are born of Adam and Eve. You remember who they were, Cain and Abel. But Cain kills Abel. Then Seth is born. And it's through him that the promised Messiah is to come. And Satan now begins to do all in his power to destroy Seth. Remember, he tells Seth's sons that they must marry the daughters of Cain. He tries to destroy Seth's generations in order to annihilate the promise concerning the Messiah. Well, does he succeed? Looks like it. Genesis 6:12 says, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And Satan won. Looks like it. But no. He hadn't won. 
What happened? Among the families that descended from Seth, there's one who feared the Lord. You know who it was. It was the family of Noah. God saved that one family, eight people, and destroys all the rest of the world with the flood. And it's in this one family that the promise is carried forward. It's continued. The promise concerning the Messiah is now uh, given to Abraham and Sarah, his wife. We hear the story in Genesis 18. It's later summarized for us in Hebrews 11. Humanly speaking, this promise was never going to be fulfilled. You know why? Because Abraham was 99 years old. Sarah was 90. Well past the age of childbearing. Her biological clock had run out. She'd been barren all her life. Surely this is the end of the line. Satan has won. But then the miracle happens. You know what the miracle was? Isaac is born. The promise is now given to Isaac. But the Lord tells Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And on Mount Moriah, Abraham raised a knife to kill his son. Genesis 22. What now will become of God's promise? Surely Satan wins. But we know that didn't happen. I believe that Christ himself appeared in the form of an angel and safeguarded his own birth according to the flesh. Well, time goes on. The seed that was going to crush the serpent's head would be born from the generations of Isaac and Rebekah. But there was another problem. Same problem. Rebekah was also barren. Again, Jehovah, the God of promise, performs a miracle. And Rebecca conceives so that the promise has continued in the line of Jacob. Now Satan attacks Jacob's descendants, the Jews. This time it surely seems that he will be successful. For though the Lord in his mercy had, remember, he'd led his people out of Egypt, they rejected him, and what did they do? They started dancing around that golden calf. Jehovah was not amused. And he said to Moses, let me alone that I may consume them. Is this the end? Has Elvis left the building? Is Satan going to war? Going to, going to win? Well, unless he will, unless there's an intercessor. And there was. Moses intercedes, and the promise is saved again. We could go on like that in the Old Testament. Let's just move to the New Testament, where the final act of this drama occurs. The scene is Bethlehem. It's Christmas, so to speak. There in a manger lies the Christ child. But although he's now actually born, Satan still tries to destroy him. You know, in fact, Revelation 12 refers directly and specifically to the events that took place in connection with Christ's birth. Verse 4 of Revelation 12. And the dragon, Satan, stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore the child, he might, he might devour it. Well, here come the wise men from the east to meet with King Herod. Be sure, Herod says... 
to report to me as soon as you have found the child. Why? Because I want to come and worship him. That isn't what he wanted to do. You know what he wanted to do. He wanted to kill the child. But the men who were wise, warned by God, they returned to their country another way after they had found and worshipped the Christ. Still, Satan refused to admit defeat. All the infants of Bethlehem and the surrounding area, two years old and under, are killed. Herod failed, and so did the dragon, Satan. Why? Because the Christ child was safe in Egypt. But the battle doesn't stop. You know, it continues. We see Jesus grow into manhood. As Jesus began his public ministry, Satan struck again. He confronted Jesus in the wilderness. He tried to turn him away from the path God had laid out for him. But Jesus defeated Satan. How? By applying Scripture to everything Satan said to him. On one occasion, Satan tried to destroy Jesus in a storm. But Jesus rebuked the wind. The waves became calm. On another occasion, Satan moved the citizens of Nazareth to try to murder Jesus by throwing him off a cliff. Didn't happen. Well, the conflict continued to unfold even in Jesus' final days on earth. Satan enters the heart of of Judas, moved him to betray his master. Jesus is arrested. There's this hastily arranged trial before Pilate and the Sanhedrin. The flogging. The sentence of death. The walk to Golgotha. And finally, the crucifixion. You know, I, I don't know what Satan was thinking as that last nail was pounded into Christ's flesh by these Roman soldiers. But he must have been euphoric. Finally, the battle was over. He had won. He couldn't believe that God had been so foolish as to come within his grasp. And he had finally accomplished what he'd wanted all along, the murder of God. But you see, at the moment of apparent victory, Satan had forgotten the prophecy. Way back in Genesis 3.15, spoken by God in the Garden of Eden. The prophecy was said that the coming one would be bruised, but would at the same time crush Satan. You know, in a sense, I guess, you know, Satan had wounded God, but it was only a scratch. It wasn't a defeat. Because on the third day, what happened? Jesus rose victoriously from the grave. And what about Satan? Satan didn't win. Satan lost big time. He was destroyed eternally, even though he didn't see it at the time. Satan is the ultimate slow learner. Listen to how Dr. John Gerstner describes Satan's hollow victory. Gerstner says, Satan was apparently majestically triumphant in this battle. He had nailed Jesus to the cross. The prime object of all his striving through all the ages was achieved. But he had failed. For the prophecy which had said that he would indeed bruise the seed of the woman had also said that his head would be crushed. 
Thus, while Satan was celebrating his triumph in the battle over the Son of God, the full weight of the atonement accomplished by the crucifixion, which the devil had effected, came down on him. And he realized that all this time, so far from successfully battling against the Almighty, he had actually been carrying out the purposes of an all-wise God. Dear ones, God's purpose can never be frustrated. Never. Christ's birth in Bethlehem is God's victory over Satan and our Savior's death on the cross, his, his resurrection, his ascension to his, is his further and final victory. Christ triumphs. The dragon Satan loses. And the angels along with the church saying, glory be to God in the highest. That's probably a good place to close, but I got something else that I want to talk with you about. One more point, and I'm done. You know, I think it's clear from this text that Satan didn't understand what was to happen by Jesus' atonement. You know, no one really understood it fully until Jesus' death. You know, yet the godly who lived before the coming of Christ, they, they had at least some inkling of it. And they believed on the one who was promised here in Genesis 3. In other words, I believe that Adam and Eve had some rudimentary understanding of all this. Way back in the garden. And they put, that, and put their trust in Jesus who was to come. Let me just tell you quickly why I think that. You know, the reason I say that Adam believed in Jesus is because of Genesis 3.20. You know, some people think that it was God who named the woman Eve, just as he had named the man Adam earlier. But no, she was named Eve, by, not by Adam, but, but she was named, uh, I'm sorry, it, some people think it was God who named the woman Eve, but it, uh, she was named Eve by Adam, not God. And I think the question is, why did Adam give Eve that name? Well, the answer is in the meaning of the name. Eve means life, or life giver. And Adam named her that because of the promise that I think we see here in this text. You know, Adam obviously had listened closely to God's speech to his wife. He understood that one of her offspring would crush the head of the serpent. He knew that his wife's pain in childbearing mean, meant that she was going to have other kids, that a people would, would follow all this. So I think Adam's declaration here, naming his wife, was an act of faith on his part. Faith in the promise that victory over the Satan would come through the offspring of this woman. And it wasn't only Adam who believed the promise God gave in the garden, on that first Christmas, I think Eve believed it too. When her first child was born, we read about it over in Genesis 4, she named him Cain, which means gotten one, or I think better, here he is. Now, she was mistaken in thinking that this child was the promised deliverer. She wasn't holding the Savior. In fact, she was holding the world's first murderer. 
But you see, I think she had the right idea. She was looking ahead to the one who would be born, who would save his people. And she was staking her life on the reliability and truth of God's promise, I think stated here in Genesis 3.15. And so of all people who have rightly understood what Christmas uh, is all about, I think. And so must we if we're to be a true part of it. You know, those who don't have this same faith, who don't know God through Christ, who don't have this understanding of Christmas, they're never going to achieve their deepest longings. They're never going to fulfill their dreams. They're never going to escape their moral and spiritual and physical bondage. Why? Because God won't let them. You know, the history of mankind is the history of men trying to storm back into the garden. To find the tree of life, eat its fruits. But God has closed that entrance. He set guards before it. And mere human beings will never make a way through. I think what's clear from this text is that we're to see the Garden of Eden as sort of a a, a type of sanctuary. A place where God's presence dwells in all its life-giving power. Man's banishment from the garden, therefore, was banishment from that divine uh, presence. All the blessings of life that went with that presence. And you see, that's man's ultimate problem. His estrangement from God. And as we're reminded here in Genesis and throughout the rest of the Bible, that estrangement was, uh, was God's entirely just punishment for man's sin and disobedience. You know, I, this might be controversial, but I happen to believe that Adam and Eve did return to the garden in their own lifetimes because of what the offspring of the woman would someday accomplish on their behalf. Could be wrong, but... You know, the first human beings disobeyed. They ruined life for all their descendants. But I believe they were also recovered by the grace of God to prove to their offspring that there was, in fact, a way back to the garden for any and every human being. But it's God blocked the way back. It's only God who can open the way again. And he did that through Jesus Christ who crushed Satan's head by his victory on the cross. You know, every man, religious or otherwise, unless God's grace should change him, he's just like John Bunyan's Mr. Loath to Stoop, who through, you know, Bunyan's second great allegory of salvation, the holy war, Mr. Loth to stoop, he's, he's engaged in an effort to beat down God's unalterable terms of salvation. To have his way back into the garden on his own terms. His own reduced and easier terms that require no real stooping on his part. No acknowledgement of his terrible guilt and need. No repentance for his sin-riddled life. No surrender of sovereignty to the Lord Jesus. But because he's blocking the way back in judgment of our sins, 
Only God can open the way. And that's what he's done through Jesus Christ, his son. So, Christmas isn't about trees. It's not about tinsel and gifts. Angels, shepherds, and stars, and wise men. Certainly those things enter into the New Testament story. Christmas is about a Savior. A deliverer from sin. Promised to our first parents by God thousands of years ago in the Garden of Eden. They had sinned. And they would have perished in those sins. But God said he was going to send his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save them from it. And that's exactly what he did. You know, the Bible says, Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's the true meaning of Christmas. I encourage you to grab hold of it. Don't let go of it. And Carolyn and I fervently pray that as you think on Genesis 3.15 this week and following, you would indeed have a very, very merry Christmas. God bless you. Please pray with me. Our Father, bless these words to our heart. Let us see clearly the blessing of God's incredible, amazing grace to us portrayed in this text. Father, we see the gospel so clearly proclaimed for us here. The promise of a deliverer, a savior who would come and die to rescue us from our sins. Let us lay hold of that wonderful Christmas gift and believe it, and then go forth and proclaim it to a dying world, a disintegrating world, for Jesus' sake. Amen and amen.